Uh, well, friends, a number of years ago, uh, I began to follow an English football club. Uh, I even bought a shirt so that I can be clothed uh, just like my heroes uh, on this club. I'm getting a lot of disapproving looks as I, as I hold that up. Uh, I was so excited that I even uh, bought my son a shirt. And uh, we both uh, watched match after match, hoping to see a golden age uh, where this football club will be victorious and bathed in glory. However, years have passed, and uh, my son and I have watched defeat after defeat, and frankly, uh, it's been a little bit disappointing. And uh, uh, I wonder whether... uh, in a similar way, uh, that's a picture of what our world is really like. Uh, For we all long for a golden age in this world where we will experience peace and prosperity and joy, don't we? Uh, How we get there is anyone's guess, and uh, all different opinions are thrown about all the time. You know, we need better education, We need better economic management. We need uh, a changing government. We need political revolution. But we are all longing for this golden age that is to come. Uh, It's been interesting observing some of the rhetoric that has been used lately uh, to justify uh, changing some of the laws in our country, such as the laws surrounding marriage and the laws on abortion. Uh, Many people use the language of Uh, this need to progress uh, beyond the past. You know, we need to progress beyond the laws that are archaic. Uh, Many people use the language of needing to be on the right side of history. Uh, You may have seen that phrase being brandied about. Uh, You see, it's the belief that we can progress into this brave new world, which will be a new golden age for humanity. Uh, which, of course, is nonsense. Uh, I mean, our world clearly has progressed in some ways. It's progressed technologically. But things are still very much the same as they always have been, aren't they? Uh, We still live in a world which is ravaged by the effects of human sin, where there is conflict and poverty and death and sorrow. Uh, We've had better education We've had better economic management. We've had government after government, and yet these things are pretty much the way they have always been. And so, uh, is there a golden age that we can speak about? And if so, what does this golden age look like? Uh, How will it come about? Uh, Well, uh, as we've heard, uh, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation for a number of weeks now. And uh, you may have noticed that today's passage is the beginning of a new cycle of seven uh, visions that the Apostle John is given. Uh, If you remember, the entire book of Revelation uh, is uh, sort of organized into sevens. Um, Now, uh, there have been uh, five cycles so far, and I'm wondering whether you can just call them out so that we can kind of catch up to where we are. Uh, what, what have been some of the cycles of seven that we've seen in the book of Revelation? Seven churches. 
Seven scrolls, seals. Yep. Seven trumpets, bowls, visions, uh, and and we're up to the sixth, right? Um, and uh, we end the book of Revelation with uh, a seventh vision, which is the vision of heaven. Uh, and uh, we'll come to that uh, in the final talk. But uh, you can see there that uh, there are seven visions here because the Apostle John keeps on repeating the phrase, then I saw. Uh, do you see it there? Uh, in chapter 19, verse 11, then I saw heaven opened. In verse 17, then I saw. In verse 19, and I saw. In chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw. In verse 4, then I saw. In verse 11, then I saw. And finally, in verse 21, verse 1, then I saw. And so uh, I think what, what we're seeing happening here is uh, from chapter 19, verse 11, all the way to chapter 21, verse 8, uh, we see this series of seven visions that the Apostle John sees, which describe the reality of the world now, as well as uh, what is to come at the end of human history. In, in other words, it's just like the other cycles of seven that we have seen. And uh, I want to suggest that uh, in this section of Revelation, uh, from chapter 19, verse 11, to chapter 21, verse 8, uh, the time frame is described as a 1,000-year reign of Jesus, or what is commonly known as the millennium. Uh, now, hands up if you've heard about the millennium. Uh, some of us have heard that term before. But uh, you can see it there if you come down with me to the last sentence in chapter 20, verse 4. Have a look with me at chapter 20, verse 4, which says, the last sentence, They, uh, that is the followers of Jesus, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, you see, this part of Revelation, this whole section of Revelation, speaks of this golden age where the Lord Jesus Christ will rule with his people on this earth for a thousand years. And so it's no surprise that Christians have tried very hard to understand when this 1,000-year period that the Bible speaks about will be. And uh, moreover, how it is related to the second coming of Jesus when he will come uh, to finally judge the world. Uh, now, this is an area where a mountain of ink has been spilt in the history of the church, and uh, I have absolutely no hope of uh, going into this in detail this morning. Uh, but I just want to give you a glimpse of three of the main ways in which uh, Christians have thought about this 1,000-year period, or the millennium, and uh, you can make up your own mind as to what makes best sense of the Bible, uh, over the next weeks as we think about this further. Uh, but just a word of warning, uh, the next little, uh, uh, next few minutes may be a bit daunting for some, and so uh, I've given you pictures. Um, and if you dip into your bulletin, uh, you can see there that uh, uh, there's a handout uh, with three of uh, the main views uh, about the millennium. 
So the first common view about how to understand the 1,000-year reign of Jesus uh, is called premillennialism. Premillennialism. Uh, it's called premillennialism because those who believe this think that Jesus will return uh, pre or before uh, the beginning of the millennium. And so uh, you can see uh, right at the top of your handout there that on this view, we are currently in the church age, uh, if you see there. But uh, then Jesus will return one day before the millennium, uh, at which time Jesus will raise uh, those who have died in Christ and give them new resurrection bodies, uh, along with Christians who are still living at that time. Uh, but after this, uh, you'll see that Jesus will continue to reign on this earth with his people for a thousand years. Um, unbelievers may or may not turn to Jesus for salvation during this time, but after the millennial reign, uh, there will be a final judgment. Uh, at, there will be a great battle uh, at, a play, uh, at, at Armageddon, and uh, at that time, the final great judgment will take place. Uh, now, to complicate matters, there are a few different versions of premillennialism, one of which says that uh, in order, sorry, before Jesus returns to usher in the millennium, there is going to be a time of great tribulation, uh, which is a time of great persecution for Christian people, at which time Christians will be raptured or suddenly taken up into heaven before being returned for the 1,000-year reign. Uh, those of us who are old enough might remember the, the Left Behind series. Has anyone watched a Left Behind uh, movie? Yep, Christine has. Um, which uh, was about people who are sort of left behind on earth as uh, Christian people are raptured up into heaven. Uh, having grown up with um, premillennial Christians who um, taught me the gospel, um, I used to think that the rapture had happened uh, every time I couldn't find my parents. <laughs> um, now, um, I'm happy for people to disagree with me, but uh, I think the main weakness of uh, the premillennial view is that I can't see anywhere else in scripture that speaks about uh, an interim 1,000-year-long period before the final judgment comes. And uh, further, I think uh, premillennialism is uh, shaped by a misreading of uh, certain passages in the Bible. And uh, I won't have time to go into these passages in, in detail today, but I'll just um, tell you what they are so you can have a think about it in your own time. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 16 to 17 and Matthew 24, verses 40 to 41, uh, if you want to look into uh, these passages at a later time. Uh, are you still with me? Yep, give me a nod if you're with me. Thank you. Uh, now, the second major view is that of post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. And as its name suggests, this is the belief that Jesus will return post or after the millennium. And so again, if you look at your handout, you can see that under post-millennialism, uh, we are currently 
traveling in the church age, but uh, pre uh, post millennialism teaches that this church age will kind of uh, morph into the millennial age, um, which is going to be a golden age where Jesus uh, reigns in such a way that the church will just continue to grow and multiply. Uh, but after that millennial reign, uh, Jesus will return and final judgment will take place. Uh, now, I think it's true that you won't find uh, many post-millennials uh, around these days. Has anyone ever met a, uh, someone with post-millennial views here? Um, come, and, come and let me know if you have. Um, I'm, I'm genuinely interested. But I think the weakness of post-millennialism is that the Bible seems to teach that Christians should expect ongoing uh, suffering and persecution for uh, continuing to trust in Jesus uh, before the return of Jesus, rather than to see this golden age where the world is uh, sort of Christianized and uh, the Christian church is uh, growing uh, all over the world. Uh, I wonder whether that's your expectation in this age and uh, that, that we live in. Um, but the third and final view is what is commonly known as amillennialism. Uh, this is the belief that the 1,000-year reign of Jesus is a symbolic way of describing the age that we live in uh, between the first and the second comings of Jesus. Uh, if you have a, have a further look at the handout, uh, under this view, we are now in the church age, uh, which is itself the millennium, and uh, all that is left to happen now is for Jesus to return and for final judgment to take place. Uh, now, just to let you know, um, I, I think I'm most convinced by, by this particular view, for, as we've seen again and again, the book of Revelation uses a lot of symbolism. And so the number 1,000, uh, I don't think is meant to be uh, read as a literal time period of 1,000 years, but as symbolic of many years that will pass before Jesus returns for final judgment. Uh, now, hands up if uh, all this has just kind of passed over your head. Some of us, um, hands up if you think you've got a rough grasp of uh, what's just been said. Um, if it has gone a little bit over your head, uh, don't worry too much about it. <laughs> uh, you might be what's called a pan-millennialist, uh, who believes that all you need to do is keep on trusting Jesus and uh, everything will sort of pan out uh, in, the, in the end. Um, and that's fine, that's fine. But I think our understanding of the millennium is important because it does shape um, our expectations of uh, what we will see in world history uh, before the coming of Jesus. And so, <clears throat> for example, I remember many years ago, um, I was walking to the station uh, late at night. Uh, I was all alone and I heard footsteps behind me. And so uh, I started to walk uh, a little bit faster and I heard the footsteps getting faster. And out of the shadows jumped this Christian man who told me urgently that the second coming of Jesus 
was just around the corner. Uh, when I asked him why he thought that, uh, he said it's because things are just getting worse and worse in this world. Uh, it was many years ago, and so he pointed to things like the Gulf War, which was going on at that time, and uh, the economic recession around the world, and uh, evidence of rising rates of crime. Now, uh, what view of the millennium do you think uh, this person had? And why? Does anyone want to bravely have a guess? <laughs> Monique wants to. <laughs> what, what view of the millennium do you think he has? Yes. So uh, that's the view that before the millennium, there's going to be uh, a time of tribulation where things just get worse and worse in this world. Uh, and, uh, you know, in some versions of premillennialism, uh, the rapture will, will take place. And so they generally have a fairly pessimistic view of uh, what's ahead in world history. Uh, on the other hand, those who believe in postmillennialism are the opposite. In other words, they have a more positive view of world history and think that things will get better, uh, particularly for the church, before the return of Christ. Uh, historically, this is the view that drove uh, the great missionary work of the 18th and 19th centuries, where many Christians believe that uh, this missionary work will lead to a, a golden age for Christianity, where the church will grow and it will start to have um, a, a huge influence uh, in uh, you know, every area of life, including politics in this world. Uh, it took two world wars uh, to shatter that view. And so uh, that's why uh, you don't see too many post-millennialists uh, around these days. But uh, I hope you can start to see that the way we read Scripture and understand Scripture uh, in this area uh, can and does affect uh, what we expect about the future. Now, uh, why have I laboured on about this? Uh, well, it's because the entire section from chapter 19, verse 11, all the way to chapter 21, verse 8, is really all about this 1,000-year reign of Jesus, which, as I've said, I think represents the present age, that is, the time between the first and second comings of Jesus. Uh, in other words, this section is no different to the other cycles of seven that we have seen, which describes the reality of the world now and proceeds to tell us about what the end of human history will be like. And uh, I think this will affect how we understand uh, this uh, part of Revelation. Uh, now, Friends, uh, given that these seven visions uh, will take us a long time to, to get through, uh, I'm just going to cover the first three visions today, and uh, next week we'll come back and uh, cover off the, the last four visions. Uh, but if you have a look at chapter 19, verse 11, you can see that the first vision that the Apostle John sees is that of this magnificent figure of Jesus riding out on a white horse to rule over the nations. Uh, we've seen already, haven't we, that the colour white in Revelation represents what? 
victory, conquest. And so this is a portrait of Jesus riding out to rule the nations because he has already won the victory over sin and death and Satan at the cross, as we've been seeing. Uh, you can see just how majestic and powerful and glorious Jesus is in the names that he is known by here. And so, for example, in verse 11, he is called faithful and true, as we saw in our kids' talk. Uh, what a comfort it would have been for the troubled church in Asia Minor to know that Jesus will be faithful and true to his promises to return and to judge their enemies. It's true also in our experience as well, isn't it? Jesus is so faithful to every promise that he has made to us in his word. He's faithful in answering every prayer. He is faithful in his love and his care of us. He is faithful, always dependable, always solid. And further, in verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows about but himself. Uh, in other words, there is a limit to what we can know about Jesus. It's not that we can't know him. We can know him truly uh, through what he has revealed to us. It's just that as, as God, it is impossible to know everything about him. And further, in verse 13, he is called the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God expresses the will of God and is so powerful that the Word also achieves the purposes of God in this world. When God wanted to create the world, how did he do it? Well, he did it simply by speaking his Word, which achieved his will. And all things came to be. And finally, you can see in verse 16 that his name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In other words, he is the one who rules over every other king and ruler in this world and every other authority in this world. And it is this one who rides out as the conquering king to make war against those who oppose him so as to rule over the nations. Uh, but here's an important question. Is this a picture of Jesus' rule uh, at the end of human history? Or is this a picture of Jesus' rule in the here and now? Um, you might have uh, had a bit of a discussion about this in your growth groups during the week. But uh, just um, I'll just give you um, a few quick seconds to turn to your neighbour and uh, just share with uh, them what you think it is. Is it a picture of his rule at the end of human history, when he destroys his enemies? Or is it a picture of his rule in the here and now? Uh, give you a few seconds to, to think about that. Uh, hands up if you think it's a, a picture of Jesus' rule at the end of human history. Straight up, don't be, don't be shy. Uh, and who thinks it's a, uh, a vision of Jesus' rule now? Oh, about 50-50. Um, I'm glad we don't understand the meaning of Scripture by majority vote. Um, but uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, and I must admit, um, I, I really struggled with this passage this week. And uh, I think I began the week 
uh, thinking that uh, it was surely a picture of the end. Um, but the more I thought about it, the, the more I now think that it's actually a description of Jesus' rule now uh, in the present. Uh, some of that is shaped by um, uh, what I've just outlined about the millennium, uh, this whole kind of section talking about Jesus' millennial rule now. But uh, uh, I'll give you some other reasons. Uh, you'll see there in verse 12 that Jesus' eyes are described as a flame of fire. Now, if you remember, this is exactly the same description of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 14, where Jesus stands among the lampstands, uh, indicating that he is with his church. Now, in the present, gazing at them with penetrating eyes that sees everything. Further, you notice that in verse 13, Jesus is clothed in a robe that is dipped in his own blood and that his weapon is not a physical sword, but the word, the word of God. In other words, uh, I think this is a picture of Jesus ruling the world now through his gospel word. For you see, this is how Jesus extends his kingdom in the here and now, and this is how Jesus defeats his enemies now. Uh, further, you might have noticed that in verse 15, the language of striking down the nations and ruling them with a rod of iron comes from um, the Old Testament uh, in a place called uh, in, in Psalm chapter 2, which describes God giving all authority to his chosen king over the nations. But when is Psalm 2 fulfilled? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, Psalm 2 is fulfilled at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to God's right hand from where he presently now rules over the world, over the nations. And so you see, friends, I think this is a description of Jesus ruling the world now through his gospel word. And that's why in verse 14, Jesus is accompanied by a great army who is wearing fine linen that is white and pure, which, uh, as we saw last week, is a description of the church. For all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to King Jesus, and he now calls upon his church to proclaim his gospel to the nations, even through suffering and persecution and death, which is what the early Christians in Revelation were experiencing. For the way Jesus reigns over the nations now is through these gospel words that are on the lips of his suffering servants. Uh, one of the most moving biographies I've ever read is the biography of William Borden. Uh, Borden was a, an American man who lived in the early 20th century. Uh, he came from a very privileged and wealthy background. Uh, he studied at Yale University, an Ivy League university, where he, he immersed himself in gospel work. Uh, during his time at university, he was convinced that God had called him to the mission field. And so, uh, after training at Bible College, he travelled to Egypt, where he began to study Arabic so that he could speak the gospel in that language. Uh, within three months of arriving in Egypt, Borden contracted 
cerebral meningitis. Uh, tragically, his mother could not be told of his illness because she was already on her way to Egypt uh, on a long uh, uh, boat uh, ride to visit him. But when she arrived, she was four hours too late. Uh, William Borden died on April the 9th, 1913. Uh, he was 25 years old. Uh, shortly after his death, Borden's mother found his Bible. Uh, in it, she found that her son had written the words, no reserves, when he uh, entered missionary service. Uh, I'm not going to have any reservations, in other words. Followed by the words, no retreat, when he arrived in Egypt. Followed by the words, no regrets, uh, as he lay dying on his bed. Uh, no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Uh, Borden was buried in an unadorned grave in Cairo, where the headstone uh, bears these simple words, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You see, the Bible reminds us that we are living in this golden age of the millennium where Christ rules. And yet, there is a hidden glory to the rule of Jesus in this age because it rarely looks impressive in the eyes of others. But one day, the glory will be apparent but for now, there is a hidden glory. Uh, you see this hidden glory in the life of William Borden. And you can also see this uh, hidden glory uh, all over the world um, as Christians proclaim the gospel. You can see it in the Christian child who speaks about Jesus in the playground, even though her friends ridicule her. Uh, you can see this hidden glory in the Christian worker who speaks of Jesus uh, to his co colleagues around the coffee machine on a Monday morning, even though many think he's just weird. Uh, you can see this hidden glory in all who are willing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, despite the cost involved. And so, so often our failure to speak of Jesus is because we are afraid of what others might think, isn't it? Or what others might do. But the encouragement of this part of God's word is to look at the king who rules in victory, the one riding on the white horse, for he is reigning over this world, and now is the time when he exercises his reign and his rule through the gospel word that is on the lips of the church. Do you understand uh, this age that we are living in? are the words of the gospel are on your lips and on my lips as well. Now, finally, we come to the last part of our passage for this morning. Uh, and uh, if I can just cast your mind back to last week, if you were here last week, we saw, didn't we, that great invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, it was an image full of joy and blessing and feasting over and above the MasterChef kitchen. But in verses 17 to 18, we see an invitation to another supper, don't we? 
Uh, yeah, you might have noticed that this suffer is one that is shocking and gruesome and horrifying beyond imagination. For an angel invites the birds, which uh, we saw in the Old Testament reading, is an image of judgment. The angel invites the birds to come to the great supper of God. But at this supper, what is on the menu are those who have opposed the rule of Jesus in their lives, no matter who they are. And so you can see there in verse 18 that the birds are invited to gorge on the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men and the riders of horses and all men, both free and slave, both small and great, who have declared war against the Lord Jesus Christ by not worshipping him. Uh, what are we seeing here? Well, I think we are, what we are seeing here is the other side to Jesus' rule. Those who respond to the gospel by worshipping Jesus are gathered by God for the great wedding supper of the Lamb. And those who rejected the gospel by worshipping the beast are gathered here to have their flesh eaten by the vultures. Uh, now, of course, this is symbolic language, and so we're not to understand this literally. And yet it is nevertheless describing a horrendous reality for those who do not turn to Jesus in worship of him before the final day. And so uh, in verses 19 to 21, you see the defeat of the beasts and the false prophet and all who worship them. Uh, it's uh, striking just how anticlimactic uh, this defeat is. Uh, in verse 19, they are gathered for war against Jesus, who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And in verse 20, the beast and the false prophet are simply captured and destroyed. And in verse 21, the rest who, who worship them are also uh, easily destroyed. It is a foregone conclusion because Jesus has already won the victory over them at the cross, as we've seen again and again through the book of Revelation. Uh, the beast here, I think, is representative of all human rulers who seek glory and worship for themselves. And so in human history, we have witnessed the rise and fall of human ruler after human ruler, haven't we? And their kingdoms, who have set themselves up against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so friends, if you are here this morning and you are someone who is living your life in opposition to this King of kings, to this Lord of lords, who has the right to rule your life, then this passage is a warning to us, to, to you, to turn to him today in worship. Come to the wedding supper of the Lamb, says God, in heaven, rather than the gruesome supper of God where the birds gorge on human flesh. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this majestic picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, our conquering King, who rides in victory. I thank you that he has won the victory at the cross for us and for our salvation. And we thank you that as the risen and ascended one, he now rules this world with all glory and all power and all majesty. 
Uh, Father, we thank you that um, in this age uh, you have had great mercy on us and we thank you that in your mercy you are delaying the end and calling people to yourself all over the world through the proclamation of the gospel word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to see clearly uh, the authority of Jesus who rules the nations and to so understand this age that we are living in that we might make every effort to speak the gospel word uh, even in the midst of suffering so that your kingdom might be extended as you make your enemies into your friends. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.